So this uh, season of Advent, we have been imagining that we have a drone. And that drone is hovering over Bethlehem, and we are flying that drone all the way up into the, the universe, up into the cosmos. And then from that vantage point, we're turning around and looking back down. And what we're able to see from that vantage point is the entire biblical story from beginning to end, the entire drama. And what we notice as we look back down is that that story, the biblical story, is broken up into four very clear acts, four different acts. So the first week of Advent, we looked at Act 1, creation. God spoke and created everything that is, and it was perfect. He created this fine-tuned world where everything was aligned, everything was accounted for. He created the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, placed them in the garden, lived with them. They were naked and unashamed. This was heaven on earth. It is what we were designed for. And it was good. It was very good. What could go wrong? So that's act one. Act two answers the question, what went wrong? The fall. The man and the woman are in the garden, and there's another creature in the garden. It's the serpent, the crafty serpent. And the serpent feeds them a lie. God had said, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Just don't eat from this one tree. If you do, you will surely die. And the serpent said, you will not surely die. Trust me, don't trust God. He's holding out on you. He knows that this is good for you. And in a, a quick act of disobedience, Adam and Eve signed their declaration of independence from God. They trusted the serpent more than they trusted God, and then they fell. God came and cast them out of the garden. This is no longer heaven on earth for them. The, the punishment of their sin is death. They're cut off from, from eternal life. They're cut off from this intimate relationship with God. They now feel this inclination to hide from God and to hide from one another. Now, ever since that time, every single one of us has been born outside of the garden. We were created for life in the garden. We were designed for heaven on earth, but what we have been passed down from our ancestors is life outside of the garden. And so we, we wrestle with sin. We live in a, a world that is, is dying and decaying, and the contagion of sin is spreading. That's act two. And that is where the, the story could have ended. God would have been right to just say, that's it. I'm done, have a nice death. But act two is followed up by a third act, redemption, which is where we're going to go today. Join me as we pray. Father God, we give you praise and thanks because you did not turn your backs on us, even as we have turned our backs on you. Lord, you are the faithful God. You overcome evil with good. Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us this morning what it is that you've done for us, the door that you've opened for us, and by the power of your spirit, we pray that you would usher us through that door, give us clarity of thought, give me clarity of speech, 
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in the power of your name. Amen. So the, the fall story, it actually continues on after Adam and Eve have rebelled against God. The, the rebellion just continues. Cain kills Abel. Then there's this per perversion where there's angelic beings trying to have intercourse with, with the daughters of, of man. And then uh, God sends the flood and he starts over with Noah. But Noah and his descendants are sinful as well. And this all culminates when mankind gets together and says, come, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a tower up to heavens. Let, let's cast off our identity as those made in the image and likeness of God, and let's make our own identity. We, we want to make our own name, and so God pulls the plug on their building project. He confuses their language, so they're unable to, to interact with one another, and then he scatters them over the face of the earth. So we're created for heaven on earth, but instead we are now scattered over the face of the earth, a depraved race in a dying world. Again, this is where the story could end. This is where the curtains could close and God could say, have a nice death. I warned you. But God. But God. Go ahead and say that with me. But God. But God. But God wasn't allowed, wasn't going to allow act two to be the final act. So act three, the challenge today is that act three goes all the way from Genesis 12 to Revelation 20. And I've got about 20 minutes. So take comfort. I am just going to focus on three verses. And we're actually going to continue right after Genesis 11 with Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all of the people on the earth will be blessed through you. If you and I didn't know the English language, and we were looking at these three verses, and, and we have the job of translating them, of trying to understand them, I think the very first thing that we would notice is a, a pattern. Because it repeats over and over, two, over, three, over, four, five, six times we would notice these two words, I will. Like you can't read those three sentences and not notice these, these words, I will. And so if we're going to translate the, the passage, this is where we want to start. What, are, what is God saying with these two words, I will? I will do it, but it also means I choose to do it. I desire to do it. This is my will. It's all contained in these two words. I will show you where I'm sending you. I'll make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. 
So we'll notice that, and then we'll notice another combination of the words you will. There's six I wills. There's only one you will. You will be a blessing. I'm going to do all of this for you. Your job, you will be a blessing. You will be a blessing to the world. So the question we are trying to answer this morning is how do we get back to what we once had? How do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to heaven on earth? We who have signed our own declarations of independence from God, we have rebelled against his rightful rule. How do we get back? How do we undo what we've done? How do we reverse the curse? The shorthand way of asking all of those questions is simply this. How do we save ourselves? How do we save ourselves? The first, chap the first 11 chapters of Genesis, they detail our great rebellion against God and this massive fall from grace. And then as we flip to Genesis 12, in just three sentences, we're already learning the answer to our question, how can we save ourselves, is we can't. We, we don't save ourselves. The story doesn't continue with what we need to do. The story continues with God saying what I will do. This is what I'm going to do. The story doesn't turn on what we do. The story turns on what God does. All of us, the entire human race, the scripture says we are slaves. We are slaves to sin, and because we're slaves to sin, we're slaves to death. It is an inviolable law. God said, if you do this, you will surely die. Satan told the greatest lie that's ever been told. You will not surely die. But it turns out that God absolutely was correct. We inherited death by virtue of our sin, and so the entire human race is captive to death. The only way our story continues, the only way Act 2 is followed by an Act 3 is if God raises the dead to life. There is no other way that there's going to be an Act 3 unless God chooses to raise the dead to life because we are dead in our sins. If you have been a, a believer for maybe any length of time, you have probably heard uh, of these words. We are saved by, by what? Grace. You've heard them. We are saved by grace, which means we are not saved by virtue of anything that we have done, anything we must do. We are saved entirely by what God has done for us in and through his Son, Jesus Christ. This, you might say, is like Christianity 101. We're saved by grace. I've been a believer for 30 years, plus or minus a few, and, and I am still struggling to come to a, an understanding of that great truth, that I am saved by grace. Because, see, I have this, this other narrative, this powerful narrative that just dominates my mind. And this narrative says this, you get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. And I know what I deserve. And so according to this narrative, what it leads me to, 
to think is that I've got to up my game. I've got to be more holy than I am, more righteous than I am. I've got to try harder. I've got to love better. And there's a whole bunch of things that I need to stop doing. I've got to try harder to, to stop my sin and try harder to, to be holy. And only if I'm able to pull that off, then maybe I can earn God's favor. And you live in that world long enough, it, it leads to, to despair. Because you quickly find out you can't be good enough. The harder you try, the more you come to recognize, I am a sinner. The more I try to pursue holiness, the more I recognize how dark my heart really is. Where do you think that narrative comes from? You get what you deserve? I've got a really good idea. I think that same serpent that was feeding Adam and Eve a lie you will not die, is now feeding us another lie. You get what you deserve. I mean, just consider how foul it really is. He's tempting Adam and Eve. Do this thing. It's good. You're going to love it. Your eyes are going to be open. It's going to be so much better for you. God's holding out on you. Do it. And the instant they take the bite, he then turns around. I can't believe you just did that. You better up your game. You better show God that you mean business because you just inherited death. In Act 1, remember Act 1? Act 1 begins with God as the subject over and over and over again. It's God who's doing the speaking. God's the subject. He speaks. He wills creation into existence. And now we're in Act 3, and, and the, the format hasn't changed at all. It is still God who is doing the speaking. God is the subject. He speaks. He wills salvation. He wills redemption into existence. Act 3, redemption, is about what God has done for us, what God wills to do. So this is the good news. You and I we're not meant to carry the weight of our salvation on our own shoulders. Friends, that's incredible news. You were not meant to carry the weight of your salvation on your own shoulders. Your shoulders are not that broad and not that strong. That weight, the weight of salvation, is a weight that will crush all of us. We need a God who's going to carry the weight of salvation on his shoulders. And what does God say? I will do it. I will. I desire to do it. I choose to do it. I exercise my sovereign free will to do it. I will do this for you, and as for you, you will be a blessing to the world. So the story continues. God chooses one man. God chooses the man Abram, who becomes Abraham. Out of all of the people scattered over the face of the earth, God selects one man, Abraham. And we've got to ask, why Abraham? Why did he choose Abraham? Was it because Abraham was a godly man? Was it because he came from a godly family? 
Was it because God knew something about Abraham that he wouldn't rebel against him like his ancestors? The answer to those three questions is no, no, and no. Abram was a sinner like every single other person scattered across the face of the earth. So why did God choose Abraham? It's not because of anything about Abraham. It's all about God. This is God's sovereign free will. This is God's choice. In theological circles, we call it the doctrine of election. God gets to choose. He is a, a, a free being. He chooses. And he's chosen Abram. Now, this is a, a teaching that, honestly, we find kind of offensive. We don't like the idea that, that God is able to exercise his right to choose. That he chooses Abraham, but what about all of the other people? We want a God that, that really plays according to the narrative. You get what you deserve. He chooses those who are worthy. But you play that forward, you realize how that unwinds. Nobody's worthy. And so God chooses those he, he, he chooses for no other reason than this is his choice. And, and before we get all upset about that, that this isn't fair, consider what God's, God desires to do through Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you, Abraham, into a great nation. So God's going to expand the net. This isn't just Abraham he's talking about. I'm going to widen the net and I'm going to make you into this great nation. And so now we've got this great nation that, that God is going to, to bless, which is great news. But again, we might ask the same questions. Why just one nation? What about all of the other nations? Were the descendants of Abraham, the, the Jewish people, the Israelites, are they any better than any other nation? Are they more holy? Are they more righteous? Are they more deserving? Again, the answer is no, no, and no. This is all about God's choosing. And again, before we get upset and say this isn't fair, what does God intend to do through this nation? All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, God's got a plan to, to offer salvation to the world. And it starts through one man who becomes a nation. And this nation is going to be a blessing to the world. It's going to be his instrument to reach the world. So God chooses Israel. They're in captivity for a long, long time. He finally rescues them from captivity after they cry out to him. Brings them into the wilderness. And in the wilderness... He gives them his law. He enters into a special relationship with them, which we call a covenant. He enters into this covenant relationship with him. If we had time to read forward, we could read all of the, the particulars of the, the covenant, but it simply is this. God says, I'm going to be your God, and you are going to be my people. That's the foundation of the covenant. I'm going to be your God, and as for you, you're going to be my people. So Israel is surrounded by, by people and, and, and nations that worship a legion of gods. There's any number of gods for them to choose, but God is saying, choose me. I, I am your God. You shall worship the Lord and the Lord alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Worship him and no other. I'm going to be your God. And as for you, you're going to be my people. So what does that mean? 
how are we called to be the people of God? And so what does God do? He gives us a law. He gives us the law. He inscribes with his own finger on, on tablets of stone his law, and he says, this is what it means to be my people. This is what I call you to do. Makes it very clear. When, when we hear of the law today, we so often think of the law as a bad thing. Like the law is a destroyer of freedom. Thou shall not. Sounds so oppressive. Thou shall. Sounds so dictatorial. We're inclined to think that anything that, that limits our freedom is oppressive. But God understands you better than you understand yourself. God knows what is going to bring you abundant life. And it is not the lack of restraint that's going to bring you happiness and joy. This is plain enough. We all know it. Go to Pizza Ranch today after church and practice a lack of restraint. <laughs> and I can tell you exactly what's going to happen. You are going to, you know that hallway as you walk out? You're going to be going, oh, I wish I didn't do that. Been there. It's not a lack of restraint, unrestrained appetites that brings us freedom and joy and happiness. That brings captivity time and time again. It's through doing things God's way, according to his law, that we actually find freedom. And so God gives his people his law. This is how you are to be my people. Do these things and you will live and it's going to be good. You are going to prosper. You will be blessed. And so then he takes them out of the wilderness and he plants them in Canaan, in this, this promised land. And we always think of the promised land as this amazing land, the land flowing with milk and honey. It wasn't all that. The Jews used to say that after God created everything, he had a handful of rocks in his hand and he threw it down and that was Canaan. It's a rocky land. It's not, not the, the best land in the world, but why did he plant them in Canaan? because Canaan was the crossroads of the world. They had the Mediterranean Sea to the west. They had the desert to the east. Any traffic between Africa and Asia and Europe came right through Canaan. It was the bottleneck of the world. And so what is God doing? Remember, what's his plan for Israel? You will be a blessing to the world. Woo. He's placing Israel right at the heart of the world. A city on a hill. And everyone's going to pass through here and they are going to see what it looks like when, when a people have God, the, they worship the one true God. They're going to see the blessings and they're going to want this. That's God's intent. One author described it this way. He said, God did not call his people to be a, a monastery in the mountain. He called them to be a strip mall on Main Street. And that hasn't changed today. He still has the same intent for us. So God enters into this covenant, and he keeps the covenant. He keeps his end of the deal. He's faithful. He shepherds Israel. He protects them. He provides for them. He loves them. He blesses them. But Israel, they renege time and time and time again. They're drawn to worship all of these, these other gods, these pagan gods. And there's this this cycle, this perpetual cycle that, that begins. They rebel. 
and consequently they are, are thrown into some form of captivity. And eventually in captivity they cry out to God and God delivers them and then they rebel and they're thrown into captivity and they cry out to God and God delivers them and they rebel and it goes on and on. That's why the Bible is such a big book. It's the story of our rebellion over and over and over again against our good God. The sacrificial fires never went out. The sacrificial fires are always burning, a constant reminder of Israel's rebellion against God. And so what does God do? He sends prophets. He sends prophets to his people, and the prophets call them to repentance. This is what the Lord says. This is what you are to do to, to get yourself aligned again with his will. But not only do the prophets come and, and preach repent, repentance, they come and they, they prophesy about something that's coming. They call it a new covenant. There's a, a new covenant that's coming. And things in this new covenant that God's going to arrange with his people, they're going to be a little bit different. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, they all talk about it. Isaiah says, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, I'll make them like wool. And Ezekiel, remember, this is God speaking. Listen to the first two words. I will. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will save you from your uncleanness. And Jeremiah, the time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with them. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Again, who is the one that is going to do this? God, I will do this. I desire to do this. I choose to do this. God's the hero of the story. Our redemption, our forgiveness is not something that, that we do. It is something that is done for us. We are in need of a savior. So here again, the good news. You were not meant to carry the weight of your salvation on your own shoulders. But somebody's got to carry that weight. Someone's got to carry that weight. Because the truth remains, if you sin, you will surely die. That word surely, it means something. So somebody's got to carry the weight of our salvation. The wages of sin is death. It is an inviolable law. So we can't carry that kind of weight. That kind of weight crushes us. And so God sends to this world the only one who can. His son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. 
Jesus is made like us in every single way, yet without sin. He never sins. He never breaks covenant with the Father. And so if the wages of sin is death and Jesus never sinned, he should have never died. He did nothing to earn death. And yet he carries the weight of our salvation in the form of a Roman cross. And he dies not for his sin, but for my sin and for your sin and for the sin of the entire world. For the sin of all those who will do nothing more than receive it. But God, the wages of sin is death. But God. But the free gift of God, it is a free gift of God. Don't you dare try and pay him back for this. Don't you dare try to earn it. You don't deserve it. It is a gift that he wants to give you. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so we've got to pause and just consider, where am I at? Am I still living in the first covenant trying to earn my way? When God has given me a better covenant, the new covenant, where he forgives my sins and remembers them no more, and all he asks me to do is receive it in faith, Where are you at with that? That narrative, maybe you are familiar with the narrative, we get what we deserve, that is a narrative straight from hell. The wonder of the gospel is we don't get what we deserve. We deserve hell. But God gives us heaven. So that brings us to the present. We are living in Act 3, and admittedly, it is a strange time. Because we're forgiven of our sins, God has placed his Holy Spirit in us. And yet, we still wrestle. We still are living in a a world that is dying, a decaying world. And the reality of sin is, is still all around us. The Apostle Paul said, Oh, wretched man that I am, I still wrestle myself with sin. So we're in this odd time where where we're in the new covenant. God remembers our sin no more, and yet this is still not heaven on earth. And we were designed for heaven on earth. There's a fourth act, restoration, and that's what's coming, and we'll talk about that next Sunday. Join me as we pray. Father God, this is the the story that that never gets old. Lord, we are, are such needy people. Lord, we need a Savior. Lord, forgive us for trying to to earn our way towards you. Lord, help us receive the, the most incredible gift that you have given this world. Receive your son. And then love you and follow you and and be your people, not to earn your favor, but because we have your favor. Lord, work in all of our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.